Well, good morning. Happy Sunday to you. The baptism and worship, it does feel like church in here, doesn't it? Join me, if you would, in your Bibles, book of Galatians. And today, we're going to wipe out the rest of chapter 4. Look at verses 21 to 31. If you've been with us, we've been walking through this book now for five months, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we are now kind of really in the home stretch. After today, we're only going to have two chapters left. And they are really practical chapters, really supposed to be applied. I think the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the end of this letter in such a way that we would be really encouraged and challenged to go and apply everything he's been teaching up to this point. And he gives us a little clue on where he's going in verse 19 of chapter 4. You look back there, he said, he's in anguish because he wants to see Christ formed in the Galatians. So we've been talking about this concept of understanding grace the liberty that should come from correctly grasping that in our lives, where we'd go out and live lives with the freedom not to sin. We'd have the freedom to obey God, and then we'd experience His absolute best for us. We'd have these lives of abundance because of His grace, as opposed to going out and trying to earn God's favor through our own actions. That's what Paul wants. He wants the Galatians, and he wants us to show Christ in our lives, to have Christ formed in us. What does that look like? Well, I like the way he illustrated it last week. And it kind of stuck with me as I was praying and preparing this week because he talked about having labor pains. He wanted to see Christ formed in the Galatians like he was giving birth to these people. And so today in the text, he's going to talk about two different women in the Bible who get pregnant and they each bear sons. But one is in a real natural way, the way we think of childbirth. But the other is a really miraculous way. And the story of these two women and the sons they have, that's going to serve as Paul's final illustration for his defense of this doctrine of justification by faith. And so I like that visual, the picture of an expectant mother as the baby grows inside of her. That should remind us of what Christ followers' lives are supposed to look like. We've probably all been around somebody who's been pregnant. And what happens? As the pregnancy progresses, they start to what? They show. That's the word that we use. Mother finds out she's expecting, it's just her that knows, her and the doctor to start out. But then after a period of time, everybody can tell, can't they? Or at least we think we can tell. I do remember one time years ago, I used to work at a sporting goods store. And I was at the store one day, and it was a real slow day. Just me and one other employee, who was a buddy of mine, his name was Pound Cake. His name wasn't really Pound Cake. (laughs) How come all guys have nicknames? I've only met like two girls ever with nicknames. But my buddy Pound Cake is there at the store, and, and so I'm working at my desk, And this girl comes in, she wants to buy some shoes. And so she goes back to the shoe department with Pound, and they're back there like maybe 10 minutes. And she comes up, she's found a pair she wants to buy. And so I'm sitting there, you know, I really don't even look up. And Pound's ringing her up, and he asks this question. He says, so are you hoping to have a boy or a girl? Have you ever been in that situation where like all of a sudden the air just kind of leaves the room? Everything gets really quiet, like it's too quiet, you know. And I could sense it, and so I look up from my desk, and and this whole thing couldn't have taken more than a couple seconds. It it seemed like forever. And this woman's staring at Pound, and she asks the question. She says, so you think I'm pregnant? And I'm sitting behind him, and it was so funny. I could literally see him getting red like a thermometer reading, like the blood was coming up the back of his neck and then past his ears. And he mutters and stammers around, and amazingly enough, the lady bought the shoes. I don't know how I would have walked if I were her. But, but she gets through this, and I, and I got to learn from this horribly embarrassing situation that I didn't have to do myself. Pound did it for me. You've you got to be really careful if you're going to ask a question like that. 
That kind lady was not pregnant. But <laughs> stick with me on this. Normally, you're carrying a baby. After a while, you start to show, right? That's how we say it. And what we mean is, hey, I can tell that you're pregnant. Now, that phrase to me is another one of the things that perplexes me because it's kind of goofy. You know, if you hear that somebody's pregnant and you see them and they're not showing, we say, oh, well, you're not showing yet. Well, that's silly because we can see them. We're not talking about them, are we? They're right in front of us. What we mean is that the baby inside you is not yet noticeable. There's no signs of the baby. But as the baby grows, the farther along in the pregnancy, well, the more apparent it should be to everyone, even my buddy Poundcake, that, that the woman is pregnant. Paul's point is exactly the same. He wants the Galatians to have Jesus Christ formed inside of them to the place where Jesus is showing. He wants their lives to be different. He wants them to display Christ in their actions and their attitude. He, he wants them to walk with the Holy Spirit in such a way that it impacts every choice they make, every decision. That's the application that Paul is working towards here. If we're Christ followers, is our Jesus showing? Will people be around us and they'll see the way we serve or the way we give or the way we worship and they'll come up and rub our bellies and say, oh, when do you do? <laughs> I see that your Jesus is showing. It's a little bit of where we've been. For sure, it's a peek at where we're going. So let's dive into the text today and we're going to see what God wants to teach us through the Apostle Paul. And if you remember up to this point in time in the letter, Paul's been really hard on his audience. Last week he said, hey, I wish I could change my tone. I wish I could be sweeter, but you guys perplex me. And so he's willing to call them out. He's willing to speak the truth and love to them. So right off the start today, he gets firm with them again. Let's look there, starting in verse 21. Paul writes this, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He said, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through the promise. So Paul's used Father Abraham for illustration purposes before, but here this is pretty genius. Paul's going to basically take a story in the Bible, what was historical fact to his audience, and use it to illustrate his main point in this argument of justification. He's going to set up a comparison for his audience where they undoubtedly will see themselves in one of these two women. That's the idea. And looking at these two mothers, it's going to be like comparing keeping the law to grace. It's going to be like comparing faith to works for them. And he starts out by saying, you who want to be under the law. And I hope I'm not reading too much into that, but to me that's a sign that they haven't fully submitted to being under bondage to the law yet. They're, they're just on this slippery slope. They're genuine believers that are toying around with this idea of being enslaved to the law. That's the thing that's breaking Paul's heart. And I really pray that I've explained this well up to this point in time. But Paul addresses, he says, you want to be under the law. Do we get what that means? Does that mean we're obedient? No. The desire is if we want to know Christ and make him known, we're going to be obedient. That's not under the law. People who are under the law mean they keep the law religiously because they think that's the thing that's going to earn their justification. Those are the people who go, man, if, if we could just keep the law enough, if we could just go to church enough, if we could just do whatever enough, then that will earn us good standing with God. And all along, Paul said, that's foolish. That's just ridiculous. And he made this case back in chapter 3 that if you've really read the law, then you understand it can't save you. And if we would then try to keep the law to be saved, 
You remember what that said? It's actually going to result in us being cursed by the law because we can't keep it 100% of the time. So to paint this picture of what he's been teaching, Paul references this story from the Old Testament. And it's a story that probably a lot of you are familiar with in the book of Genesis. If you don't know it, go back and read it. It's fantastic. But because of time constraints today, I'm going to have to kind of paraphrase it. God goes to this guy named Abram. And he says, I'm going to bless the nations through you. And what he really does is he makes a promise that Jesus Christ is going to be in his family line. And God says that Abram's, and he will become Abraham, he says Abraham's children are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. It's going to be a whole bunch of them. Now, Abraham is an obedient guy, and he wants to go along with this tremendous plan, but he thinks maybe God's forgotten a thing or two. So he goes to God, and he says, Hey, listen, God, I'm really old. And my wife, and you don't ask a woman about her age, or ask her if she's pregnant, you know, he says, but my wife, she's really, really old, and she can't get pregnant. She's never been able to. He says, I don't think all of a sudden we're going to start having any babies. But Abraham believes God. So he goes to tell his wife Sarah, and Sarah is even less convinced than her husband. As a matter of fact, what she does is she laughs. And it's not one of those cute, <laughs> that's so funny kind of laughs. She goes, ha, ha, like that's going to happen. You know, it's the stupidest thing she's ever heard. But that's the promise. Sarah's going to have sons who will have sons who will have sons. And out of this line will come Jesus, who will make it possible for the world to be saved to be delivered from this bondage to sin if we would respond with faith in Jesus Christ. And so Sarah buys into that, and then she waits, and she waits, and she waits. And then Sarah does something that I've done before. Maybe you've done this too, I don't know. We think we're in tune with God's plan. We may think it's a really good plan, but come on, God, your plan takes so long. Maybe I could just help you with your plan. That's what I'll do. I'll help you, God, and we'll speed your plan up a little bit. So Sarah gives her maidservant, Hagar, to Abraham as a gift. She says, well, he's the one who's supposed to be the father of the nations. He can do that with Hagar. And Abraham very foolishly accepts the gift. And Hagar gets pregnant with a child. And they'll recognize that wouldn't have been a hard thing to do. Hagar was not old. She was not barren. And she has this boy named Ishmael. But then, what do you know? Sarah gets pregnant. And now remember, that was an impossibility. She has this boy named Isaac. His name literally means, ha! Because listen to me, this was an uncommon thing. This was a big deal. Because Abraham and Sarah were, what? Really, really old. And Sarah was, what? She was barren. She couldn't have any kids. This Bible story is so important to Paul's argument with the Galatians. There's a reason that he chooses this illustration. One of the bottom line arguments for Paul all along has been, you can't, but God can. You Galatians can't save yourselves by trying to keep the law. God can save you when you put your faith in Jesus. So here's these two women. They have these two boys. One of them, not a big deal. She was a woman of childbearing age who wasn't bearing. She had a baby. But then Sarah had a baby when she was an old woman and she'd never been able to get pregnant. So that child, the text says in verse 23, Isaac, he's the son through the promise. Well, what's the promise? It's basically God can. God is going to make Abraham into a nation. Abraham can't do that by himself. He's a guy. He can't have kids. His wife's barren. They can't have kids. 
they can't do it. Who can? God can. That's what Paul was teaching. Now look where Paul goes next, because this is interesting. In order to emphasize this contrast, the difference between law and grace, the difference between we can't and God can, Paul treats these historical facts from God's Word as an allegory. Follow along in verses 24 to 27. So clear. This is allegorically speaking. For these women are two covenants. He says, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She's Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds, watch this, this is going to hurt, to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And Paul's got to be talking about the heavenly city, Jerusalem, that will come to earth one day. Read about that in Revelation 21. He says, for it's written, and he quotes Isaiah, rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Now, if we think Paul's been pretty hard on these folks up to this point in time, he just punches them in the face here. But first, he's going to teach them about allegory. It's not a tool that we want to use all the time. And if we are going to use it, it's so helpful to do it like Paul and say, hey, this next part is going to be allegorical. I'll just tell you right now. I'm going to say that Sarah and Hagar are like two covenants. They aren't literally covenants. We get that, right? They're the mothers in this historical story. Nothing about the allegory changes that historical fact. Paul's just using an illustration. And so he says Hagar is going to represent the Mosaic covenant. She's going to represent bondage to the law. And Paul doesn't even mention it in the text, but the assumption is that his audience will then understand, okay, Sarah's going to represent the Abrahamic covenant. She's going to represent God's grace and the messianic promise that can come. But just quickly, this idea of interpreting the Bible allegorically can get us into trouble. Here's what that means. If we interpret Scripture allegorically, it means we look at the words, we look at the story, and we think that they're supposed to mean something other than what the normal meaning would be. They're going to mean something other than the literal meaning. And and we got to be careful because there is allegory in the Bible, for sure. We just have to know how to handle it. We have to know when we're supposed to take a different meaning from a, aside from what it would normally mean. Throughout history, this has been a problem. There have been people who have stretched God's Word a lot by believing at every opportunity we should inter- interpret the Bible allegorically. They'll read it and say, well, I know the Bible says this, but I'm, I'm sure it really means this. No. <laughs> Let me tell you, that, that's a big, big mistake. It really doesn't matter what you're reading, but for sure with the Bible. If you want to figure out what the author is trying to communicate, you have to understand the context. You have to know the intent behind it. Otherwise, we can read it and say it means whatever we want it to mean. And we'd entirely miss out on what the author is trying to intend. Hear me on this. Take this away. The very best way to accurately interpret Scripture is to take it literally at every opportunity you can. Now, when you do that, honestly, sometimes people will take you to task for it. That there's parts of the Bible that are hard to take literally. I remember, this is a couple years ago now, I had a couple that I was doing premarital counseling with, and they were both unbelievers. And so I had the opportunity to share the gospel with them. And, and, you know, they seemed really intrigued by it. And there were parts of the gospel, just the audaciousness of it, that they really connected with. But this girl in particular, she, she had one real problem with the Bible, and it was one that I'd never encountered before. I hadn't even thought of. And this was the deal. The ages of the people in the Bible 
was holding her up. She couldn't get over it. She asked me, who's the oldest person in the Bible? And I said, Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. And she looked at me and she said, do you really believe that? And I said, yes, I do. Does that make me weird? And I'm weird for lots of other reasons. But it, it just means that I interpret the Bible literally. I don't know how it works. I really don't. I don't know if lifespans got progressively shorter after sin entered the world. Originally, we were meant to live forever. I don't know if there's some kind of water canopy over the world before the flood. I really don't know the details. I just know that the Bible says Methuselah was 969 years old, and I take that literally. I've had questions before. You probably had this one about Jonah living in the belly of the fish for three days. Well, that's got to be figurative, right? That's, that's got to be allegory. No, I don't think it is. I really think that's literal. Part of the deal on that is if I believe that God can send his son to die on the cross in my place and he can die and be raised again three days later, how hard of a stretch is it to believe that God can keep a man alive in the belly of a whale? I think the text today actually backs me up on this. When God does things that we can't do, when God has a guy live to be 969 years old, when God keeps a man alive inside a fish, when God produces a child from an old barren woman, no offense, Sarah, when he does stuff like that, it means he can do stuff that I can't do. God can, we can't. I think it's just that simple. God doing stuff like that really just leaves me in awe of him. So in our passage, Paul says he's going to take something allegorically. He says he's going to use these two women, Sarah and Hagar, and they're going to be two covenants. He says the first one is Hagar. She's going to give birth to slave children. So she comes from Mount Sinai. Now we need to know some of the context there. What did we get at Mount Sinai? If you go back and read Exodus 19, that's where we got the Mosaic law. So Hagar is going to represent the law. She has slave children. And Paul says she's like the present Jerusalem. She's like the Jerusalem that his audience at the time would have known. And that's a punch in the face. That's an ouch for them. Because for the Jewish people here in this letter, they would have thought for sure they were going to be identified with Sarah. They didn't see Hagar being their mother at all. But he comes along and says, no, you're Hagar's children, and you're enslaved. So then Paul continues this allegory in verses 26 and verse 27. And I said, he quotes Isaiah 54.1. I love this. He's using the Bible to illustrate the Bible. And that's at a place in the Old Testament where the prophet Isaiah is addressing the Israelites. He's addressing God's chosen people. And at that time, they've been forced into exile. They've actually just been scattered all over the place. And so you think about the, the state of mind they would have been in. They would have been people with no hope. They had this dream, these plans of becoming a great nation. Now they're scattered all over the place, and they see these other nations rising up and becoming great powers. So they're just devastated. They're broken. They've lost all their hope. And so in Isaiah 54, he comes in and reminds them this important lesson. Hey, when we're broken, when we're weak and barren, when there's absolutely no way that we can save ourselves, that's when God shows up. That's when we see his strength and his power. Remember we talked about this last week, about Paul having a thorn in his flesh? It plagued him so much that he cried out three times, God, please, Take this thorn from me. And God said, no, <laughs> I like you with that thorn. Why? Because God's mean? No. It's because only when we're weak, 
we come to the end of ourselves, can we recognize that we can't accomplish anything godly on our own? We just can't save ourselves. Megan said it in the video. I spent about a month, several years ago, working during the summer at a, at a Young Life camp. My job there was something called head leader. It's not that glamorous. It just means you get up at 6 and stay awake as long as everybody else is awake. Supervise everything that's going on in camp. And so I was sitting down at the beach one day. It was just beautiful white sandy beach and this gorgeous lake, and I'm supervising down at the beach. And, and there was a lifeguard there, nice kid, and he's actually, you know, doing what he's supposed to do. And so I strike up a conversation with him, and I ask him this question. This is a good question for a lifeguard, isn't it? I said, hey, have you ever had to save anybody from drowning? And he said, you know, I've rescued a couple people in pools before. He said, but I've never had to save anybody in the open water. And then he said this, and he goes, and I hope I never have to. Well, that kind of intrigued me, you know, because that's your job as a lifeguard. And I, I didn't understand the difference, so I asked him to explain what he meant. What's the difference between saving somebody in a pool and saving somebody in the open water? And he said, well, in a pool, it's different because a lot of times you know exactly where you are in the pool. You know how deep it is. You know how close you are to the sides. He said, sometimes people get in the water, they just freak out. And real honestly, if they just stand up, they could touch bottom. But then he said this, and it really intrigued me. He said, so when you do that, you don't always have to let them go under. Well, now he had me. <laughs> now I was all into the story. I, I said, let them go under? What do you mean? And this is what he said. He said in his lifeguard training, they taught him when you have to save somebody in the open water, if they're drowning out in a lake or in the ocean, what you have to do is you swim out there to them as fast as you can, and you get to within a few feet of them, and then you stop, and you pull up. I said, then what do you do? He said, you wait. You wait for him to stop kicking and thrashing and screaming and wailing. Please save me. You just wait until they give up the fight and they start to go under. And that's why it's so hard. That's why he didn't want to do it. Because somebody who's out there kicking and thrashing and wailing, they want to be saved. But if you go in and try and help them while they've still got a lot of fight in them, they'll pull you down. They'll hurt you. They want to help save themselves. What did Sarah do when God's plan was taken too long? She decided to help. She gave Hagar to Abraham, but she wasn't helping. We're still dealing today with the consequences of that help. God had it covered. He didn't need Sarah's help for the promise. That's what Casey told me. When you're in the open water, you've got to wait until they totally give up. That's why I don't want to have to do it. I don't want to have to be out there and see somebody screaming for me to help and just wait until they tire themselves out. If you think about the application, this is why we mess up God's plan for trials in our lives so often. It doesn't matter so much if it's our own trial, but what if God is trying to teach somebody something and we really love them? And we don't want to see the people we love thrash and wail and scream and cry for help. So what do we do? We step in too early. We bail them out. They don't have to deal with any of the consequences. And so consequently, they don't learn what God wanted them to. Man, I remember a light bulb coming on for me that day. I hope it just came on for you because that's what Paul's teaching here. That's honestly what God was teaching Paul about this thorn in his flesh. It's this reality that we can't save ourselves. It's only in our weakness. It's only when we surrender. It's only when we slip under the water that God will come in and rescue us. He saves us when we quit trying to save ourselves. So back in the text, Paul's just punched the Galatians in the face. 
He said, you aren't who you think you are because of your heritage. You think you're fine because you're Jewish, but no. Because you have been toying around with this idea of trying to earn favor with God, he says, I'm going to identify you with Mount Sinai and Hagar. You're enslaved. That's harsh news. And I think the reason Paul quotes Isaiah here is I think that Isaiah is trying to teach that before her captivity, before her exile, Israel was like a woman with a husband. She could have become a great nation. She wouldn't have been barren. She would have been able to have a child without a miracle from God. But then she was scattered. And then in her captivity, Israel was barren. And so Isaiah is pointing to a blessing that is to come. Paul's talking about a blessing that is to come after a period of thrashing and wailing. Israel will be restored. Paul's pointing for sure in the fact here that Sarah is later blessed with a child, Isaac, which leads to a much greater blessing for God's people than the child born from Hagar, the child born in a natural way. God's way, when things seemed really, really bleak for Sarah, that's better. So now Paul's going to bring this teaching home because he wants to help us apply what we've just learned. And he does it by setting up three comparisons for us in verses 28 to 30. So read that passage along with me. Here Paul explains, and you, brethren, these Galatian believers, he says, you're like Isaac. You're children of the promise. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, this is Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, that's Isaac, he says, so it is now also, in verse 30. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Paul keeps using the Bible to illustrate the Bible. He makes these application comparisons. First, in verse 28, Paul compares the birth of Isaac to the birth of every Christ follower since, that they're children of the promise. Paul's always explaining this for us. He's saying, remember, Isaac had a very unordinary birth. His parents were ancient by childbearing standards. Sarah had not been able to get pregnant, so naturally for them, it just wasn't happening. But then, God shows up. And he makes this promise to Abraham, and he works some kind of miracle in Sarah, and boom, she's able to conceive. The woman who was barren, she's now with child. Not because of something that Abraham and Sarah did, right? They'd tried to have babies before. This is because of something that God did. Well, Paul says, Isaac's birth should remind all of us as Christ followers of what God does for us. In this world, we're kicking and screaming and thrashing and wailing to be saved. And we go out and try and earn favor with God. We try to earn our own salvation. Can we do it? No. The only way to benefit from the promise that God made to Abraham comes through Jesus Christ. It's to be born again. Not a natural birth, but a supernatural birth like Isaac had. Remember we said this a couple weeks ago. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that everyone who has a natural birth, every baby born on this earth, is a child of God. It doesn't say that. So who are the children of God? It's those with supernatural births. It's those who are born again. Look real quickly at the Gospel of John, chapter 3 and verse 3. We'll have these on the screen. Jesus explains this to Nicodemus. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
And if you remember that account, that throws Nicodemus for a big loop because he's a practical guy. He's the guy who would wonder, how can a guy live to be 969 years old? How can a man live inside a fish? How can a grown person crawl back up inside their mother and be born again? We give Nicodemus some grief, but it's not that weird a question. And so Jesus explains it again in John 3, verses 5 to 7. He says, Truly, truly, Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. People have babies. We understand that. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Children born the natural way, through two parents where the mother conceives. Don't make me go into logistics here. Just nod your heads. Follow along. That doesn't produce children who are children of God. Those are children of the flesh. So who are the children of, the God, of God, the children of this promise? That's a special thing. That's these who are born of the Spirit. It's a supernatural thing that only God can do. God draws people to himself. He saves us when we get out of our own way. And Paul's point all along has been, okay, if by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, these Galatian believers have become children of God, they've become sons, then they're eligible for this inheritance that comes with being sons. And so if that's the case, they should not act like children who are in bondage. Now keep your finger there in Galatians, but turn back with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible. Because in Genesis chapter 21, you can read this account that Paul's going to reference in verses 29 and 30 of Galatians 4. First, in verse 29, Paul's going to compare the way that Ishmael, who's the son of the bondwoman, Hagar, persecuted Isaac to the way that the false teachers in Paul's day were persecuting Paul and the other Galatian believers. If you look at Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, here's how that plays out. Verse 8 says, The child grew, this is Isaac, he's the son of the promise, He grew and he was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Verse 9, now Sarah, this is Isaac's mom, she saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, that's Ishmael, whom she, Hagar, had borne to Abraham. What was Ishmael doing? It says mocking. Now mamas can speak up here because you don't mess with mama's children. It's on. Mamas will take matters into their own hands if they find somebody messing with their kids, right? That's what Sarah does. Now, I don't know, you know, for sure in these verses, it's not until the next verse that you get exactly what Ishmael's mocking Isaac about. But I'm going to go ahead and give it away. I'm going to spoil it for you. Because without a doubt, Ishmael's laughing at Isaac because he thinks he knows something that Isaac doesn't know. I think Ishmael's sitting around going, man, that's sweet. They're throwing that nice party for you. I hope you really enjoy that. But here's the deal. I'm the oldest son. So the inheritance is coming to me. Be nice to me, maybe I'll give you a sheep. You know, I I think it was something like that that he was thinking. Now, the weird thing to think about from an application standpoint is that this little mocking incident is the precursor for everything we see today with tension in the Arab and Israeli world. Everything we see today are consequences of Sarah wanting to help God out with this plan. We're still dealing with it. But Paul's main point in using this as an example is to say, hey, these Judaizers, they're like Ishmael. They're sons of keeping the law, and they're going around mocking and persecuting these children of promise. 
the children who are born by the power of the Holy Spirit, like Isaac, like Paul, like every Christ follower in the world has been. They're being persecuted. Paul knew this because with very, very few exceptions, whenever Paul's persecuted in the Bible, it was by these Jewish people who were in bondage to the law. Then finally, Paul makes his last comparison in verse 30, and it's an application one. He points out that the actions that Abraham took with Ishmael really explain what the Galatians should do to the Judaizers. Well, what did Abraham do with Ishmael and Hagar after Ishmael mocked Isaac? Look at Genesis 21, verses 10 to 12. Therefore she, this is Mama Sarah, she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And this matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. He says, Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. Because it's for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. So Ishmael makes fun of Isaac. And Sarah, as the mama bear, says, oh, no, you didn't. And she goes to Abraham, and she says, why don't you give her and that boy of hers the boot? Kick him out. That boy will not split any kind of inheritance with my son. And the text says that was tough for Abraham because Ishmael was his son. And now that, that shouldn't have happened according to God's plan, but it did. So we have to address it, just like any wrong decision we ever make. We understand, don't we? The Holy Spirit guides us. He leads us. He doesn't make the decisions for us. He he leads us to the very best decision, the one that's going to result in abundance. But if we don't choose it, then there's going to be consequences. So we can't pretend stuff didn't happen. We have to address these things. But here in the text, God is so faithful. He grants Sarah's request. And he tells Abraham, go ahead, send Hagar and Ishmael away. I'm God. I'm plenty big enough to sort all this out. And then besides, he says, it's through Isaac. It's through the son who was born in the very unordinary way, the supernatural way, not in the way you could have done it without me. It's through him that I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. And Paul's trying to teach the Galatians, you've got to be able to do what Abraham did. He sent Ishmael into exile. Why? Because being a natural-born child doesn't entitle us to the inheritance in this example. We've said children of the promise are children who are born again in a supernatural way. So Ishmael doesn't get it. He was just born in the natural way. That's what these Judaizers are like. They want to keep the law. They want to be under the law and think somehow that they'll become children of God. But that's not the way it works. So Paul's saying you need to give them the boot. (laughs) You need to send these false teachers into exile because that's what Abraham did. Then in verse 31, Paul kind of wraps it up. He puts a a tidy bow on this whole illustration. He explains, if you're a Christ follower who by God's grace has accepted the gift of eternal life by putting your faith in Jesus, not by trying to earn your salvation, he goes, then we're brothers. And Paul can say this in conclusion. He says, so then, brethren, we're not children of a bondwoman, but of a free woman. He says, we're not children of the slave woman. That guy was driven away. He wasn't an heir to the promise. He says, we are. We're children of the promise. We're believers in Christ. And if we are, then we're heirs with God. We're co-heirs with Christ. That's so important for us to understand so that we can apply this. We can't earn our inheritance with God. We can't be physically born into it. 
We have to be born again. We have to be rescued supernaturally before we become heirs. Do we get that? We've got to really understand that. And if we do, then we've got to think about, okay, what do we get? It says we're heirs. What do we get? Because we get some stuff for sure. But the problem we have in applying it, the problem we have in owning it, and living with our, our inner Jesus showing is that some of the stuff we get is a future inheritance. We don't get it right away. Some of the stuff we get right now, and it's incredible, but some of the stuff we get right now actually causes us some grief. The biggest thing we get as heirs of God, this is going to sound silly, it's God. It's God himself. That's what we get. That's both an immediate and an eternal promise. Psalm chapter 73, verses 25 and 26 explain it. One of my favorite psalms. It reads this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I love that psalm. I wish I lived it better. There's a day coming for Christ followers when all we'll have is God. Everything else will fail. It says my Flesh will fail. My heart will fail. Physically, will break down. It's happening to me already. My emotions will be crushed. All I'll have is God. What does that sound like? It's what happens in brokenness. That's what it looks like to be broken. But because of my status as an adopted child of God, I'll be broken. I'll still have God. And listen to me, that's enough. That's enough. He's the strength of our hearts. He's our portion forever. He's our inheritance. That's enough, but we get more. We're going to receive at our resurrection new imperishable bodies. That truth is becoming more and more valuable to me every day. I own three pair of reading glasses. I keep them around all the time because I can't read anything anymore. My entire sermon is typed up here in size 18 font. You can probably read it from there, I would imagine. (laughs) I am falling apart. I'm going to get a new imperishable body adopted sons and daughters get god himself we get new bodies we also get the world do you understand that one day the earth will be ruled and inhabited by the children of god and we're going to rule alongside our savior jesus christ that's what it means to be co-heirs and now the world that we're going to get (laughs) when all things are made new it won't look like this one it'll be way way better That's our future inheritance. There's nothing we can do to earn it. That just comes from placing our faith in Jesus. It's phenomenal. But it's a future inheritance. And so I think the problem that we seem to struggle so mightily with, the thing that sometimes keeps us from letting our inner Jesus show, the the thing that makes us want to run back and somehow try and earn God's favor or grace, is that one of the things that we do inherit right now is troubling. We see it in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul shares this. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution. That's part of the inheritance too. Did you know that? Jesus explains it this way in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, These things I've spoken to you. Why? So that in me you may have peace. Because in the world you have tribulations. But take courage, I've overcome the world. Those are a couple verses I'd write differently if I wrote the Bible. I'd want to say, some who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. And I'll pray for you. I don't want it to be me. 
I, I don't want the persecution. Thank you. But I'll pray for you. In this world, you may have tribulations, possibly. Some of us, not all of us, right? It's not what it says at all. And because then we're scared about the trials and the troubles and the persecution, I forget about that last glorious part that Jesus has overcome the world. I'm all worried about my persecution. But here's what I want to explain. Here's what I want us to grasp in conclusion. The fact that we get this amazing inheritance in the future and we get the trials and the tribulations and the persecutions now, that actually makes sense when we think about how God saves us. Because we've got to be done kicking and thrashing and screaming and crying out and wailing, save me! We've got to be done with that before we can accept the gift. Otherwise, we'll keep trying to save ourselves. We need the trials now because we need the brokenness now. We need to be able to come to the end of ourselves before we can rest in God. Just ask yourself practically, if God left us here on this earth without any trials, without any persecution, do you think you'd ever get broken? you think you'd ever remember to praise God? Or would you sit around going, man, this place is great. I sure have made something nice for myself. Man, I must really be on to something. And in reality, what we would be is slaves. Slaves to comfort and circumstances. God allows the trials in our lives so that we will be broken. As weird a picture as it is, He allows them so that we'll slip under the surface of the water. So that we'll realize we can't save ourselves. We need a Savior. And when we give up, when we understand that we can't keep the law 100% of the time, when we finally kick and scream and tire ourselves out and we start to go under, that's when God kicks in. Once we quit trying to save ourselves, that's when we can recognize, like Paul says, that we're sons of the free woman. We're children of the promise. We're heirs with Christ. It's incredible news. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for trials and persecution and tribulation as part of our inheritance of being children of the promise. God, thank you for the role they play in our lives that we would be broken. It's never much fun to sit and pray for brokenness. But God, I, I've, I've, I've never met anybody when I ask them what the most significant thing, the thing that you used to draw them to themselves, the, the thing where they grew the most in their life, nobody ever says, well, I heard that sermon Pastor James preached. They all say, I was broken. I came to the end of myself and I recognized that God was there. He desired to save me. I thank you for the opportunity to be children of the promise. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who aren't. God, they're, they're children of the slave woman. They're enslaved and in bondage to sin. God, I pray for their hearts. They would recognize that you're there. You desire to save us. I pray they'd come to the end of themselves very, very quickly and rest in you. God, we love you so much. Help us to leave this place changed. Help us to live lives where our Jesus is showing. People can see it in our lives. God, we love you so much. We give this day to you and we ask all that 
In Jesus' name, amen.